1: Hello, and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. Each week, I'll listen to some of the best audio storytelling from around the world and share it with you. And coming up today...
2: From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Serial. One courthouse told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig.
1: Serial's back, and this time, no extraordinary single case. No, this time, the show's just trying to cover the entire US criminal justice system. Then a teenager with an unusual hobby.
3: Especially with the skinning of them, they can be very stinky and don't really want to be going to school with organ fluids all over my shirt
1: and skin. Plus Death in Ice Valley, a very unusual cold case from Norway that sounds like it's straight off the pages of a detective novel.
0: Some people take their secrets with them to the grave when they die. And some graves hold more secrets than others.
1: Finally, Last Scene covers another unsolved crime. 13 artworks worth half a billion US dollars stolen from a Boston museum in the biggest art theft of all time. And if you've heard anything good recently, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. On Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour, and I'll be featuring lots of your recommendations on future shows. expectations can be high when you're credited with giving podcasting its biggest ever boost. Serial's coverage of a Baltimore murder case became a mainstream entertainment hit in 2014. But season two, a more complex story about the US serviceman, Private Beau Bergdahl, who was held by the Taliban for five years in Afghanistan and Pakistan, didn't quite hit the same high notes. More than two years on from that, Serial Season three's underway. And three episodes in, nobody can accuse the team of lacking ambition or of trying to revert to a tried and tested formula because the subject, the US criminal justice system, couldn't be much bigger. And whereas Season 1 focused on a single, extraordinary case... Season three looks at the often humdrum, high-volume world of daily life in the hulking Justice Centre in Cleveland, Ohio, for insights into how the wider machinery of justice is working. Given free reign to record throughout the courts and its corridors, the reporting team of Sarah Koenig and Emmanuel Jochi spent more than a year gathering material. And they've uncovered an often unseen world of plea bargains and wheeling and dealing where the vast majority of cases never come to trial, where right and wrong can get lost in the push for a speedy outcome and where judges can exercise broad powers with little oversight. Meanwhile, there's an entrenched and very visible racial divide between the primarily black defendants and the predominantly white lawyers and judges who try and represent them. So early on in episode one, a shameful truth is spelled out. It never helps to be black. It never hurts to be white. Here's an early scene where Sarah Koenig takes the lift that carries everyone around the Justice center's cluster of multi-storey, brutalist concrete towers.
2: The main court tower is 26 storeys high, so the elevator really runs the place. If a person's arrested in Cleveland, they're coming into the Justice Centre from the basement... Weary cops escort suspects from the underground parking garage. They get booked, go up a few floors to the jail. Once they get a court date, they're riding up to one of the courtroom floors. The lower floors are for lesser crimes, less hallowed proceedings, misdemeanors, housing court. And the higher floors, starting about halfway up the building, are for felonies. Detectives wearing lanyards often get off on the ninth floor, where the prosecutor's office is. The court stenographers, always courteous, drag their squat wheelie cases on and off the elevator. Maybe they chat for a few floors with the officers from the sheriff's department in search of a coffee and a muffin. Defense attorneys are riding up and down all morning, muttering to each other, can you believe, griping about judges who have their own judge elevators so they're not overhearing. The elevator mainstays, of course, are crime victims and their families— and defendants and their families. Sometimes those families are one and the same, When I'm feeling optimistic, I appreciate that an elevator car in a government building is one of the few places left in our country where different kinds of people are forced into proximity. I like to think that we can all stand so close to one another, with our sensible heels and Timberland boots and American flag lapel pins and fake eyelashes and axe cologne and orthopedic inserts and teardrop tattoos and to-go coffees. And when the elevator doors open up, spilling us out onto our floor, the fact that no one is bloodied or even in tears— it's a small, pleasing reminder that we're all in this together. Other times, the shoulder-to-shoulder closeness only magnifies the obvious. We're not the same. Not at all. Coming up from the lobby one morning, a young black woman is holding a little portable speaker. The white people in the elevator give each other looks. I don't want to reciprocate their looks. Instead, I decide it's my duty to break the tension by saying the lamest thing I possibly can. To be clear, that wasn't my plan. It's just what came naturally to me, apparently. But a soundtrack for the elevator. Not like her music you usually get. She doesn't even bother with it. mm-hmm, this time. Now I keep my head down, to avoid the looks the black people are probably giving each other. This place is primarily black and white. The majority of the courthouse staff is black. Clerks are mostly black. Most of their managers are white. In the sheriff's department, most of the security guards are black. Most of the deputies are white. Most of the attorneys are white. Almost all the county judges are white, and their bailiffs are white. Most of the defendants and crime victims are black. In the cocoon of the elevator, everyone's polite to each other, pretends nothing is weird about this. But if the elevators were calibrated to detect a power imbalance in the load, like a socially conscious clothes dryer, they'd be perpetually on the fritz.
1: Some of episode one, a bar fight, walks into the justice centre of season three of Serial. Here's a little bit of episode two called You've Got Some Ghouls with Emmanuel Jochi, the other reporter on the team, spending time in the courtroom of an outspoken judge called Daniel Gaul, and the sentencing of 19-year-old Terrell, who's been done for driving a stolen car after a police chase.
4: Who else is here with your mother? His sister? OK, hi, how are you?
5: Judge Gore greets Terrell's sister, and another sister and brother, then turns back to Terrell, starts to churn out a lecture anyone with better behaved siblings has heard.
4: When you're not in jail, do you live with those fine people? Yes. Well, that's too bad for them, isn't it? Because you've been pretty much of a bad guy. You're two nice sisters and your nice brother. They don't have these problems, do they? But you bring grief to their door, don't you? Don't you?
5: You tell me. Judge Gould looks at Terrell's PSI, pre-sentencing investigation, which is details about Terrell's background.
4: Is your father in the picture? I see him.
5: I see him, Terrell says.
4: What what does that mean? They were divorced when you were five. Correcto? Yes. Does your father have a criminal record?
5: Terrell says, not that I know of.
4: Has he been to the penitentiary? I don't know. He's a decent guy. What's he do for a living? Don't you don't know him, well, you don't know him well, he sort of deserted you and the family, right? Are your brothers and sisters full brothers and sisters or stepsisters? Full brothers. And sisters. Full brothers and sisters. And your parents divorced when you were five. Is that correct?
5: If you're hearing a sharp note of, I don't know, racial stereotyping in Judge Gould's questions. An assumption on the part of the judge that this black family is rudderless and unstable, that all these kids must be from different, possibly incarcerated fathers? Yeah. I'm guessing Terrell hears it too. I'm quite certain his attorney, John Stannard, hears it. He's standing just behind Terrell, at the podium in the middle of the courtroom. He's got one hand at the back of Terrell's neck and the other firmly on Terrell's hip, as though he is physically trying to steer Terrell through this.
1: Extracts from episode one and two of the new season of Serial. Episode three's just come out and you can find photos of the Serial team and the Cleveland court building as well as details of where to listen if you visit rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. And since episode two aired last week, Judge Gall has made a statement denying any racism now or in the past. He's up for re-election to the court in November. Tristan Meyer-Odell is a typical Canadian teenager with an unusual hobby. He's into taxidermy. And even though stuffing dead animals isn't perhaps the pastime you'd choose for your offspring, his parents seem totally on board. The Teenage Taxidermist is produced by Rachel Matlow for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation.
3: I have to take a lot more showers than usual, because especially with the skinning of them, they can be very stinky, and don't really want to be going to school with the organ fluids all over my shirt and skin. I am 15, and I am the Teenage Taxidermist. I first started taxidermy, When I was sitting on my bed and watching a show and some movies, very into horror movies, and I watched Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, and (laughs) the main character, Norman Bates, actually does taxidermy, it just seemed like something I would be into.
6: I got a call at work one day when he had a short day at school, asking, uh, Mom, do we have any sodium borate? I said, I don't know. I said, is that borax? I said, we've got borax. What do you what on earth do you want borax for? He's like taxidermy. I'm like what?
3: I went to buy some dead rats. I have a pet snake, so I usually buy rodents to feed to my snake, so I buy it from that shop. And it was
6: they're already dead and frozen.
3: I bought a huge plastic tablecloth threw it down grabbed a scalpel and borax, amongst a few other items, and just got right into it.
6: I came home from work that day to his first fully taxidermied piece, which he had completed entirely on his own with the assistance of a YouTube video. It turned out
3: better than I thought, but I kind of forgot to put on the legs. I like to make exotic creatures that are not, that are kind of beyond this world, like polymorphic things that are dressed up like people. This is supposed to be Ratty Potter, he has a little scar on his head, and I'm making a tiny little scarf and wand and glasses. And then my most recent piece was Leonardo Vinci. he's a little rat artist.
6: And don't forget the little mouse.
3: Oh yes, I've taxed her made a mouse, but I don't no longer have that because I gave that to someone as a birthday present. I turned uh, mounted a mounted mouse head into um, a hairpin, so she can wear a dead mouse in her hair every day. I think she had a good laugh about it. This piece right here, I think, turned out quite well. That rat is riding a squirrel, which is posed, well, like a squirrel. Some of my pieces still have needles in them to keep the skin drying. Those two needles in the nose of the squirrel are actually stuck right now. Can't get them out.
6: That black squirrel was roadkill from three blocks away. And I do remember the morning I was driving to work and I drove down the street. And as I passed the squirrel on the road, there was a little voice in my head said, Oh my goodness you're totally going to pull over and go and look at that squirrel. And if that squirrel looks okay, you're actually going to pick it up and take it home and put it in the freezer for your son, aren't you? And that's exactly how it went. (laughs) And I just, I laughed and shook my head all the way to work after going home and being late for work because I had brought home this squirrel for my son. But honestly, it's raw materials and it's free and it saves the city from picking it up. Uh, and it was, you know, a lovely, plump squirrel until it had been hit by a car that morning. And the look on my son's face when I said, close your eyes and hold out your hand, that night was so worth it.
3: I was astonished. I was like, what store did you get this from? I don't know many stores that sell squirrels. I feel lucky for having someone who would understand what, what I do and be willing to go that far or even allow me to stick any sharp items into a dead corpse
6: in his bedroom
3: (laughs) (laughs) well i would personally consider myself other than being a taxidermist a nerd i um i like superheroes comics and video games uh dungeons and dragons and things like that and i have a uh, comic book stapled to my walls a- around everywhere. Just part of my collection I like to show off. And other than that, scattered taxidermy supplies. And beside you right now is my freezer. That was a Christmas present.
6: It was a Christmas present from his parents because our freezer was constantly full of really horrifying things in states of semi-undress um,
3: especially when we have an Airbnb in our basement.
6: Yeah, so we do have Airbnb guests from time to time using our fridge and freezer and Tristan's father is a vegetarian and a practicing Buddhist and would rather not see these things all the time while he does support Tristan's passion.
3: Also in these this freezer I have multiple
6: rabbit heads. You know, it should be underscored that Tristan is an incredible animal lover and that No lives have been taken just for the pursuit of his art.
3: I am a very large animal lover. I have multiple pets, and I've had multiple pets in the past. Rabbits, I've had pet rats, snakes, lizards, dogs, frogs, fish, all of the above. And I, I really do love them. So I've gone through a lot of deaths and phases with these animals, I know my first few were very harsh on me, but after a while, you pick up on it and you realize it's a natural part of life. And then after a while from that even, you realize that when you bury them, you're kind of wasting them and not really preserving them and leaving them be. So I like to believe that when I do taxidermy, it shows that we're using as much as of them as we can and preserving them as much as we can,
1: like, even beyond death.
6: He knocks my socks off.
1: Gretel Meyer-Odell, Tristan's mum from The Teenage Taxidermist, produced by Rachel Matlow for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and that originally aired on CBC's Sunday edition. And I found that story on the Third Coast International Audio Festival's weekly podcast called ReSound. The festival actually starts next week in Chicago, and it's basically a fortnight-long celebration of audio storytelling. There's live podcast events, some speakers and prizes, and I'll be playing a few of the winners on next week's show. A couple of new releases now, and the trailers for this show have been creeping me out for weeks.
6: My
7: father is Keith Hunter Jesperson. He's known as the happy face serial
4: killer. She was my first. And I thought I would not do it again. Don't shine. But I was wrong.
5: And I was sitting on the
6: couch and I said, oh my God, Lord, if you take me, if he kills me, just don't let my kids find me in the morning. Please don't let them find me. And I sat with the dogs next to me. I can see the door handle turning. The moment I walked in that house, I felt like I wasn't alone,
7: that I was being watched in every room. And I said, I was being touched, Dad. Something was touching me. And he said, oh, don't pay any attention to them. They bother me all the time that night. In the park.
0: Where the sun don't ever shine I will shiver the whole
7: night
1: through Yikes. Happy Faces out today. Sounds like some great bedtime listening there. And then next week, Crime Towns, a popular show that investigates crime and corruption in various US cities. It's back for season two. <laughs>
8: You've probably heard that Detroit has a lot of crime. So we're going to bring you stories from the people who've actually lived it.
4: This city teach you one thing for sure. You always need a
9: hustle.
10: If you don't, it's going to blow up in your face.
9: He throws a a bag on the table just like that. I say, what's that, sugar,
2: flour? He said, no, that's dope. Just like last season... You'll hear from the criminals. Boom!
10: Shot me right through the head. Came out right here. Just missed my brain.
1: And the cops. Nobody was summarily executed, because that's something you couldn't justify. And some unsung heroes.
3: I don't half-step nothing. When I tell you I'm going to get you, take it to the bank.
1: Primetown Season 2 from Gimlet Media comes out on Tuesday here in New Zealand. And if you like the sound of that, it's only available on Spotify. The badly burned body of a woman is discovered in a valley in Norway. Arranged around her is an odd assortment of objects, a rubber boot, burnt paper and plastic bottles containing water. In a strange twist, all the labels have been removed from her clothes, as if she, or somebody else, was trying to obscure her identity. It sounds like the start of a Scandi TV crime drama or some detective novel, but this grisly tragedy is actually a real-life mystery that's remained unsolved for nearly 50 years. So who was this unidentified woman? Was it murder or suicide? And could advances in forensic science, including DNA analysis, help solve this cold case? These are just some of the questions that the ten-part series Death in Ice Valley, a co-production between the BBC World Service and the Norwegian public broadcaster NRK, tries to answer.
0: Some people take their secrets with them to the grave when they die and some graves hold more secrets than others. There's one in particular in the main cemetery in Bergen, a city on the west coast of Norway. It's hidden under a rhododendron bush. You could walk right past it on the gravel path and you wouldn't know it was there. There is no headstone, no cross, no sign at all identifying who lies beneath. One morning in February 1971, a small group of people working for the Bergen police huddles together in the icy rain. They watch as a white coffin is slowly lowered into the ground on this spot. The coffin is decorated with tulips and carnations and lined with zinc. None of the funeral guests know the dead person inside. There are no relatives of the deceased at the graveside.
10: The priest opens his Bible and reads from the verse about the unknown woman, saying that the woman before them is also unknown. He adds, as the coffin disappears from view, in all probability she is also buried in a land unknown to her. The zinc-lined coffin wouldn't disintegrate. It was chosen in case her family were ever found and she could be returned home.
0: When people go missing, they're usually missed. Someone must have missed her somewhere when she was gone. Somebody must know something.
10: This is the story of a woman traveling in Norway in 1970 who died a terrible death and left behind her a trail of strange clues. Her real identity
0: has remained unknown for almost 50 years, and it's one of the world's most intriguing unsolved mysteries.
10: Kind of a novel, and especially at this time, 1970, the Cold War.
2: She was laying with her head down there and her legs up here
10: why was she traveling around with all these identities was she a spy
2: it was like a cover-up it was
1: like a layer of protection around this whole question about this lady
10: episode one the isdal woman
0: I'm Marit Higraf. I'm an investigative reporter from Norway's NRK, the Norwegian public broadcaster.
10: And I'm Neil McCarthy, a radio documentary maker from the BBC.
0: Together, we're trying to unravel the mystery of an unidentified woman known in Norway as the Isdal Woman. A mystery that has haunted my country for 47 years. Still today, nobody knows who this woman was, where she was from, And what she was doing in Norway, on the North Atlantic coast of Scandinavia. That's what we would like to find out.
10: In this podcast series, we're going to find out whatever we can about her life, her death and the world she was living in. And it's about using new technology and the power of podcasting to do that. So listen closely. You never know, you might be able to help us solve this true crime.
0: We begin where the Isdal woman was found on the 29th of November in 1970. She gets this name from a beautiful but desolate valley called Ysdalen in Norwegian, meaning Ice Valley. It's next to the port city of Bergen in western Norway, and that's where the body was found. A large black lake fills the bottom of Ice Valley. Pine forests give way to scree and bare rock halfway up the mountain. In winter, there are few hours of daylight here and it gets very cold and wet.
10: So this is all just broken trees, chopped down forest. There's trunks, logs, branches broken up in the path, which is completely sodden. There's been a lot of rain already and more rain coming in, in this valley on the outskirts of the wettest of Norwegian towns. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: Welcome to Norway.
10: Yeah, nice weather you have here. <laughs>
0: it's, it's a nice stroll in Norwegian wood.
10: <laughs> huh? Marit's been working on the case since she got the Norwegian police to reopen it a couple of years ago. Unlike me, she knows it well. She's actually probably the world authority on it. But there are still many unanswered questions, even for her.
0: I mean, the story... Itself, It's riddle upon riddle. There are a lot of people who have been trying to, to solve this mystery for years. Policemen, private investigators, authors, journalists. A lot of people have been reading documents and trying to solve this mystery. No, nobody came anywhere. So why should we? Yes, because we thought, what can modern technology and methods done by the police, like DNA... What can methods like that give us of possibilities today to come further in this Mm
10: -hmm.
0: mystery zone?
10: The scientific methods used in detecting crime known as forensics have come a long way in 47 years. DNA, for instance, our unique genetic code is now a key to unlocking many crime mysteries. Anyway, back to the valley. It's not a well-worn path. I don't know who would come up here. To grass to hold on to. There's a fast flowing river to the side because it's been raining all night. So, this is Istal Valley.
0: This is definitely East Valley. And Karl yes. Halburos, you're back again after 47 years.
2: I've never been here since.
0: And Karl Halbur is actually the only person still alive. From the crew of police officers who went out there on that particular day when the message came. Yes. Somebody had found a dead body in Istanbul. That's right. So you were the first one on the scene. Is it strange to be back?
4: Yes, it is. It is. And
2: I'm getting some few memories.
0: But we're still not there. We're heading towards the scene.
10: Do you remember when the call came
2: in? Yes, it was Sunday morning, about nine, ten o'clock. And uh, I was at home on duty. There had been a fire. She was burned. His girls had found a dead body and the rest of the fire. That was the the message.
0: So then climbing up this hill, you knew nothing? We
2: had the faintest idea. We didn't know anything. It
10: was a dead person. That's all we knew. Mm-hmm. So, Marit Carl Halvo, the retired policeman, is talking about some girls. Who, who are they?
0: They were then 10 and 12 years old, two young girls, out for a walk with their father, a professor. They had a terrible shock when they found her. They had to get out of the valley as quickly as they could and call the police. And remember back then in 1970, there were no mobile phones. So they had to walk the long way around that lake and back to Bergen City, where they managed to call the police. They must have been very scared.
10: Yeah, they must have been at that age. You just telling me that story reminds me of something that happened to me at a similar age. I would have only been about 12. And I went out fishing with a friend. This is out from where I grew up. We were out on a sandbank. We saw something. We didn't know what it was. There was a seagull on it. We thought it was a sea lion that had washed up, probably dead. And on the way back from fishing, we went to investigate, and we realised that it wasn't a sea lion. We saw a body laid out on the sand, face down, with clothes on, but the clothes were all ripped, and I thought... My first impression was, oh, it has to be a a shop dummy of some kind that's been afloat and washed up. But then you realise you saw the flesh, you saw... The, the the whole waste that had gone on after a body being in the sea for a long time, you realised it was a corpse, it was a dead person. And I was very thankful that I couldn't see the face as well because that might have uh, led to real nightmares. But our first reaction as two young boys was to just run to flee that scene and run back to shore and call for help and not look back. And I that's, that's just triggered the similar similar memory of what those girls went through.
0: It must have been a a traumatic experience for you as a child and I guess it tells a lot about also how those two girls were feeling because actually they, they never want to speak about what happened back then and I've been speaking to one of them off record and she says it's something they're determined to keep within the family.
10: We've been sort of clambering uphill on this very, very rainy day in Bergen. In fact, it was rainy before, but now it's coming down thick in swirls. You can't and get away. Yeah, and and wind. wind. You can't really get away from it. Look into the valley, and it's almost like we're inside a cloud. I guess it's hanging so low, and the the lake is sort of black below. What's the name of the lake?
0: Svartedike. Black. The Black Dike, or something in English. All oh, right. This part of the valley actually is called. Death Valley. Death Valley? Yeah.
10: Yes, the whole area. Mm-hmm. It's called that. Do you know why? It's
0: surprising to know that it, it has been quite a lot of stories and myths about people found dead here, suicides, and children found dead here. And our woman, Easter woman, is one of them. The story of the Easter Woman captured the public imagination in 1970 when it hit the headlines. Who was this mysterious woman? What could she have been doing in that desolate valley and how did she die? And storytellers are still captivated by her, like one of Norway's most famous crime writers, also from Bergen, Gunnar Stålesen. He's used to creating situations, riddles and solutions. Our story is real life, but because it reads like a novel, I think we should talk to him.
10: Here he is, with grey hair, swept back and glasses, wearing a raincoat and holding an umbrella, of course. We call it the Ice Valley, but the colloquial name of that part of the valley is the Death Valley, the Valley of Death, because there has been some accidents there because of the very steep hills, and there was a place where people in the medieval age went to commit suicide. If it was a suicide, I think that she did it on a very, very curious way, in a place that it's impossible to understand how she could find if she wasn't very well known in Bergen. That's why I think she must have had an appointment with someone who was locally
1: known. Some of episode one, the Isdal Woman of Death in Ice Valley, presented by Marit Higraf and Neil McCarthy, with sound design by Phil Channel. And that series is on the shortlist for the best factual podcast at the Association for International Broadcasting Awards, alongside the RNZ series Bang with Melody Thomas. I spoke to John Manell, the BBC World Service's podcast editor who commissioned the series, about how getting listeners involved was an important part of Death in Ice Valley.
8: One of the things we try to do with Death in Ice Valley, we attempt to do with most of our podcasts, is to create this idea of a podcast club or community, this idea that, that the podcast belongs, as they do, to, to the people who are listening. And so, we, if, if you are familiar with Death in Ice Valley, you, you'll know we set up the Death in Ice Valley Facebook group.
10: Anyone can join, and we'll be sharing as many photographs and documents as we can. We'll be adding more after each episode.
8: And... It's been amazing because people have been forensically examining the evidence day in, day out. The vast majority of members have been actively engaged, trying to help with the investigation. At this moment, as we record, there are 16,229 members. And I think that's just an example of how people have been affected by the podcast, the fact that they actually want to take part in trying to help with the investigation itself.
1: And it sounds like people have actually gone to the site because they were describing that a path had kind of formed going to the to the, to the site where the body was found, And also people were chipping in with some tips about marks on cutlery and all that kind of thing. Has, has any significant information actually come to light yet as a result of all this community involvement, or, or not really?
8: Yes, right at the beginning, Neil and Marit, the presenters, made it clear that this was an ongoing investigation, and... We wanted the help of the podcast community, and that has happened. And so I don't want to give away too many spoilers for those who haven't heard it yet, but there's certainly one very important part of the investigation which was significantly helped by a member of the Facebook group. We're following up at the moment some really potentially interesting leads. We'll have to see where they take us, which have come from listeners around the world of the podcast. So there's no doubt that not only have people enjoyed, I think, being part of this community where they are helping with the investigation and looking through all the evidence with us and examining everything in the podcast, but... Their help has actually assisted the investigation and um, it'll be really interesting over coming weeks and months to see how much further we can get with that.
1: Can you remember when you first heard the story of the Isdar woman and, and what really resonated or what really grabbed you about it?
8: I can, yes. My background, um, I'm the podcast commissioning editor at BBC World Service English, but my previous role for many, many years was as an investigative reporter for the BBC. And another journalist here, an online journalist at the BBC, contacted me just to chat through a story she was working on. She was writing a story for BBC Online about the NRK investigation. And as soon as I heard about it, I thought there's a podcast there because it's such an intriguing story. It's a really sad story. This woman had a tragic death in really horrific circumstances and there's so much which was unknown about what happened to her all these years on. And I'm always looking out for a story which lends itself to episodic storytelling and I just thought, yeah, this is it. And NRK had been working really hard um, on their investigation for quite some time and when I contacted them, they really liked the idea of making this into an English-language podcast which would spread the word about the story around the world and potentially help with the investigation and that's exactly what's happened.
1: I thought it did a really great job as well of actually taking you there, I think with the sound design and the music and that rain, of course, that you hear... it's quite evocative and it really does do a good job of you know you really can start building up these pictures in your mind about what places look like and where where you are and um, it's quite powerful in that sense too I thought. Yes
8: and and that was one of the aims I wanted this to be a really immersive listening experience as you say I, I wanted people to be able to close their eyes and whatever they heard would take them there i wanted a real sense of location a sense of place and i think in podcasting more than any other form of audio that's really important because most people and this is a generalization but most people seem to listen to podcasts at the moment this might change over the years but they listen. With headphones, and so it's it's right in there. It's in their ears. It, it, it's the the sound is right in their head. And and I think to to have this soundscape, which was beautifully made by our sound designer Phil Channel, it really does take you to all the locations around Northern Europe and elsewhere where where this story is, is taking place.
1: What about the true crime genre? Because it's obviously been very popular since, you know, Serial and S-Town, but it still seems to be of continuing popularity. Can you see any end in sight for this true crime genre? Is it something you're still seeing lots of true crime scripts and things cross your desk in your role? There are certainly lots
8: of proposals that, come into me which along those lines but what's the reason for the success of of all of these podcasts which as you say have been sort of categorized as 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 true crime For, for me it's about great storytelling about gripping storytelling and and about a series which hooks you in and makes you want to come back each time and i think you know, it, 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 there they can be, and in many cases, that there is some kind of crime involved in, in, in that story. But I think there are many other stories which could work as well in, in the same way. I think for me, it's just about episodic storytelling and about what is it that can really bring you in as an audience And give you a reason, and this is really important, give you a reason to come back each time. Because with a series like Death in Night's Valley, that is crucial. We want people to listen to episode one, but then feel they need to come back for episode two and three and and, and so on and and, and keep with, with, with the story.
1: John Munnell, the BBC World Service's podcast editor, speaking about death in Ice Valley. And I just jumped onto that Facebook group that John mentioned. It's now up to 17,619 members, and people are still posting information about the evidence and suggesting theories about who this woman could have been. There's a link to that and a list of some of John's listening recommendations on our website now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. it's the biggest art theft of all time. Nearly 30 years ago, thieves posing as police officers broke into the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston and made off with 13 artworks. Total value in today's market? A cool half a billion US dollars. And despite a $10 million reward, no arrests have ever been made and none of the art's ever been recovered. Last scene from WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe tells the story of this famous unsolved crime.
9: We're in a strange place. Many people don't come up here.
1: You might have to duck
9: a lot. We're in the attic.
7: It's an unseasonably warm October day in Boston. The attic at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum is stuffy and dimly lit, Anthony Amore, the museum's head of security, has something he wants me to see.
9: We're going to go around this corner here.
7: At 6'2", Amore has to walk doubled over beneath the slanted eaves. We are high above galleries once ransacked by thieves in a daring overnight robbery almost 30 years ago. The attic space is dominated by a massive HVAC system. It's hum proof that it's working to keep treasures on the floors below at just the right temperature and humidity level.
9: Almost there.
7: We step out of the low amber light into much cooler air and quiet. I think this is what Amore has taken me to see, a storeroom of the sumptuous textiles used on furniture and walls throughout the Gardner Museum. But that's not why we're here. In the back of the room, in a space barely wide enough to accommodate us both, Amore puts his cell phone's flashlight on and pulls a plastic cover off something big. Nope. Oh, wow.
9: This is. We're looking at the rosewood stretcher that held Storm of the Sea of Galilee, but what you're looking at here is Rembrandt.
7: So, this is what was left behind after the thieves slashed Storm on the Sea of Galilee from the frame. It is. When the thieves slashed Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee from its frame with something razor sharp like a box cutter, they left behind the edge of the painted canvas attached to the stretcher underneath. It was Rembrandt's only seascape. In it, Jesus, serene, rises to calm a raging sea aboard a fishing boat that is being battered in a mighty gale. Alongside Christ's apostles is a face we recognize. It's Rembrandt gazing out at us. In a letter dated August 30th, 1898, to her Florence-based art dealer, Isabella Stewart Gardner wrote, Your description of the sea picture makes me fairly ache for it. I think I know what she means. I've only seen copies of the painting, but even those capture human frailty and the fury of the ocean. I can't imagine what it would feel like to stand before the original. But here I am, with the stretcher that once held it. It comes up to my shoulders at five feet three inches high, and it's four feet two inches across. Wow, it's enormous.
9: Yeah, you can see why they wouldn't have been able to take it with them.
7: No, it wouldn't have been something you could carry out. But there's the, that is paint that Rembrandt put there. Mm -hmm. What a thing to see. It kind of takes the breath away. In addition to that remnant of Rembrandt that the thieves left behind, they also left a clue about how they stole the priceless painting.
9: If you look closely here, you could see the cut into the into the stretcher. You see that? Oh line yeah, so right they were so?
7: pressing hard yeah. with something extremely sharp because it's a very clean cut. Right. Well it's a crime scene, really. You it know, is a it's crime like scene, the, yeah. the chalk line of the body in exactly. the murder scene. This, it's a victim. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's, it's it's a victim. I don't know why, but it makes me feel very queasy to look at it.
9: <laughs> it does, yeah. I, I get the same feeling every time I look at it. You get... There's so much to it. It's not—it's Rembrandt, so you're in the presence of greatness, right? But you're in the presence of, of history, too. This is uh, a stretcher that held one of the most valuable things that was ever stolen. Why am I this close to something Rembrandt had? I'm from Providence. There's no Rembrandt. stuff like this. And, you know, it's just a or inspiring thing, I gotta get it back. Because this is torture. You almost feel like, why, why did I get stuck with this, you know? Why, because it's, look at it, right? You understand, I can never walk away from this.
1: Last scene from WBUR Boston and the Boston Globe, presented by Kelly Horan and Jack Rodolico. And that's about it from me and the podcast hour for this week. You've been listening to Serial, The Teenage Taxidermist, Death in Ice Valley and Last Scene Just Then. Any listening recommendations, please send them through to me at pods at rnz.co.nz or on Twitter, we are at RNZ Podcast Hour, and I'll feature as many as I can of them on future shows. From me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week.